Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. This week we have a guest on the show, Paul Gamble. Now, Paul is the CEO of Nori, a startup that's aiming to create a marketplace for negative emissions. That's removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. I first became interested in Nori when I saw that they were offering the opportunity to buy negative emissions for the low price of $15 a tonne. The increasing importance of negative emissions in our climate change scenarios is something that I'm very interested in and is going to be the topic of future episodes, so I was excited to get into the subject with someone who's actually making this a reality in our conversation. We had a wide-ranging discussion about climate change, the role of negative emissions, and specifically what Nori does and what it's hoping to do in the future. Without further ado then, the interview. Okay, so first off, Paul, I want to say thanks very much for coming on the show, and we'll start with some background You've been a sort of of serial entrepreneur. You've set up several different businesses in the past, as I understand it. So when did you first become interested in climate change and solutions for climate change? Yeah, thanks for having me, Thomas. Um, So this goes back to 2015. I had uh, left what I was, uh, I was working on consulting in 2014. I left that. And in 2015, I wanted to work on something that was more important and more impactful. And most importantly, I really wanted to find an area to work on that would attract a lot of really talented people. And um, to me, it seemed like climate change was kind of an obvious choice there because, of course, more people were going to care about climate change in the future Uh, as it just gets uh, as it makes more of an impact around the world. Like it's going to become a thing that more people care about. And uh, that's really borne out so far. So why, why don't you tell us about the sort of the foundation of, of Nori in particular and an explanation of what the company does today? How does it all work? So I'll pick up in 2015 where I left off and I started a meetup group to meet other people who were interested in solving climate change. And I was specifically interested in uh, tackling the problem from the perspective of if there are too many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, then it seems like the solution should be to pull those gases back out. And I was curious why we weren't doing that at a large scale. And uh, over the next couple of years with my uh, group, we read a lot of white papers and articles and books, and we found that we already have all of the tools that we need in order to sequester a lot of carbon. We're just not doing them. They're not happening happening at any scale. And that made sense to to me to say that uh, the problem is incentives. The problem is that people are not being incentivized to remove massive amounts of carbon. And if we could incentivize them to do so, then we would be able to use market forces to scale this up and make the most impact uh, in as short a period of time as possible. And I think that that would also help defray some of the political challenges, at least in the US, around how we respond to climate change and, and what we do going forward. So basically, Nori is a marketplace for carbon removal from the atmosphere. We work with people on the supply side who uh, take actions to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and sequester it somehow. Uh, We're initially working with farmers who are sequestering carbon in their soils. And then we go through a measurement and verification process, uh, which is important to do because you can't see or smell CO2 or carbon. So once we do that, we issue... Uh, certificates. We call these NRTs or Nori Carbon Removal Tons. And the farmers can then sell those through our platform to buyers. This is a mix of individuals and uh, typically businesses that want to offset or remove their emissions as a part of their operations. So we're like uh, a market exchange uh, for this. Um, Think of it like Etsy or eBay for carbon. 
Okay, and can I, can I ask who your main customers are? Because obviously climate conscious individuals are a market for this at, at the fairly sort of small and pilot scale. But more broadly speaking, we're seeing now increasingly lots of companies have set their own goals to go net zero for this company by a certain date. Right. And I think that ultimately for many of these companies, it's going to involve some kind of CO2 removal because they're not going to be able to easily zero out the emissions that they can't control in the same way that I as an individual or you as an individual we can't, with presently available technology, reduce our CO2 footprints to zero because, you know, if you want to eat something that's in a, in a shop, then someone's probably driven that there and you have no control over whether they used a, a fossil fuel consuming van or not, so to speak. So mm-hmm. who are your customer base and have you, have you partnered with industries and companies or is it, are you seeing lots of interest from individuals as well? Yeah, I mean, we've we've definitely sold to some individuals, and I think it's good as a proof of concept, but I tend to agree that that's not where the massive amount of scale is going to come from. And so we, we think of businesses in terms of kind of three different categories. There are businesses that want to just offset their emissions. They're, it's a very straightforward uh, motivation behind what they're doing, and they typically will have like a, a sustainability director at their company who's responsible for doing that. And there are a lot of large businesses, large companies that do this today, um, and they'll work with consultants or brokers to do so. But that gets pretty expensive. And so for small and medium-sized businesses, they're kind of left out in the dark right now. They don't really have good options. And that's where we've seen a pretty good uh, uptake uh, once we launched last, last winter. Um, from people who have just never really had access to this kind of uh, easy uh, platform before with low transaction costs. Then the second group is uh, companies that want to offer carbon removal as sort of a pass through to their own users or customers. Um, Think of like, for example, say you take an Uber ride and at the end of the ride, uh, maybe a sponsor plays an ad and then that sponsor pays for removing your emissions uh, from the ride that you just took or or you order something uh, from an e-commerce merchant and as you order it in real time, they pay for removing the emissions required to deliver that product to your door. Uh, so those are the sort of, um, we, we think of it like an API integration, where it's an API for carbon removal payments. Because the idea is we want to integrate carbon removal into the background of everyday life so that it just kind of happens automatically and people aren't really thinking about it. Um, that's how we'll get to really large scale. And then the the third group are uh, companies that uh have involvement on both the supply side and the demand side. So like large food companies, for instance, really want their farmers that they purchase from, uh, that they purchase like commodity grains from to adopt the practices that sequester carbon and then they could be the ones paying them. So they're uh, they're showing up on both sides of the market, which is uh, doubly helpful for us. And I suppose the advantage in what you're hoping to do, at least in terms of that second group of customers, is that you can be very continuous in how you allocate these uh, carbon removal terms. So if it's a case of someone wanting to remove a few grams of carbon for a single car journey that they've taken, that's something that is sort of possible through your platform. Yeah, it's a microtransaction approach. Yeah, microtransaction approach, exactly. And it's the sort of thing where I often think that, you know, if, if people could tick a simple box when they're booking a flight or, uh, you know, choosing to go on a, a car journey or something to zero out the CO2 there, then a lot of people, I think, may well do that, particularly if they see that the cost is low. Oh, well, I was going to comment on that because there are a lot of airlines, for instance. I think British Airways does this last time I flew through there. Um, 
offers the ability to check a box and they'll do something with the carbon. But one of the problems is that consumers don't trust those. Um, Mm -hmm. It it just it's a box that says we're going to do something and you have no idea uh, what that actually means, if that money is actually going to that, if they say that they're planting trees, are are they sure that the trees are still going to be there in a few years? So we think it's really important that you add a whole lot more transparency to that kind of process. And people should be able to drill in and see exactly who removed it, what happened, when it happened. And that's a big difference between um, like us being able to serve up real time carbon removal. So the carbon's already been removed and then we can show you exactly what it was versus a, a program where it, you know, money goes into a fund. And then at the end of the year, they say that they're going to go plant some trees and like, you know, who knows what happened. One thing that I wanted to ask about is specifically. So the technology you're using at the moment is a type of soil carbon sequestration. And if you wanted to talk a little bit more about how that works and also why you chose it as your first route for negative emissions, because there's many, many different ways of removing CO2 from the atmosphere, uh, as I'm sure you know. Right. But uh, th- this is this is one that uh, has, has seen a lot of attraction because of some of the co-benefits that it offers. So if you want to sort of explain how it works and why you chose it. Yeah, well, th- there are really three reasons why we chose this. The first is that it's by far the most affordable method of carbon removal. Secondly, it is the most scalable method uh, that we have today. And then the third is that the entire food and ag industry is already moving in this direction. And we're just riding that economic wave. So the way that it works is like in conventional agriculture today, what happens is a farmer will uh, plow their land and um, plant their seeds. Uh, They will uh, grow the crop and then harvest it in the fall and then most often leave the field empty or fallow throughout the winter. And over the decades that we've been doing this process, um, as as, uh, farming got more mechanized after World War II, uh, this has caused a lot of soil erosion. So erosion means that you're losing uh, organic matter that's in the soil. It becomes harder to retain water, harder to grow crops. And so regenerative practices are kind of the antithesis to this, where instead of plowing your land, you try to reduce the tillage as much as possible and uh, like directly inject seeds. You grow your crops throughout the season. And then at the end of the harvest, you plant cover crops. And these are low lying crops like rye or alfalfa or legumes that um stay in the ground throughout the winter and then you uh, get rid of those in the spring and then plant your new cash crop and what's happening in the soil is uh, soil is a mixture of dirt and rocks and minerals and a lot of living organic matter like microbes and fungi and when you are tilling the land what you're doing is you're turning over that soil and exposing a lot of that organic matter to the air where a lot of it dies off and it's important to remember that agriculture and land use change like this is accountable for somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of all emissions worldwide so that's a really big deal and regenerative agriculture instead focuses on let's rebuild the health and quality of the soil and uh, increase the amount of organic matter. So when you plant cover crops, what you're doing is you're putting roots in the ground and those roots are feeding the uh, the microbes and fungi with nutrients and you're continuing to grow it. And that organic matter, that is the carbon. So uh, the whole point of regenerative agriculture is to increase the amount of organic matter in your soil which is increasing carbon and then has all these other benefits for farmers. Like they can retain water better. They can uh, eventually uh, they should see increased crop yields because more of their land is more productive. More of the time Um, their fertilizer costs should go down. Hopefully their energy costs should go down because they don't need as uh, much large equipment. Um, 
so it big benefits, um, but there is kind of a, uh, a barrier to entry um, in terms of how farmers can get started with it. And that's why they need the uh, financial incentives in the form of paying them for storing carbon. So it's a really like win-win situation for everyone. Yes. And what's it like working with the agricultural sector as a startup? I mean, how are the conversations that you're having with uh, the farms, I guess, that you're partnering with? And are they, are they seeing these co-benefits from soil carbon sequestration specifically on top of the payments that they're getting? Um, so the, uh, I, well, I guess I never would have really expected that I would have ended up working in agriculture a few years ago uh, when I got started on this, but, I, but I'm glad I am um, because the ag industry is really fun and really interesting. It's, it's highly relational. Um, there's a saying that uh, agriculture moves at the speed of trust. And so there's definitely a lot of uh, time spent getting to know each other, um, building up credibility and, uh, uh, you know, kind of proving out to uh, farmers why it's worth working with us and why they can trust us. Um, I, I think those are good qualities. I appreciate that about the industry. Um, we've been taking an approach where we are we can kind of work both bottom up and top down in terms of uh, finding more farmers to work with. And the top-down approach is by working with partners who have access to a large number of farmers who could be doing some of these practices. And then we work with the partners at the top level and um, kind of help explain to them how our process works and how to, how to work with us. And then uh, they decide that it's worth it to, uh, to them for their own motivations, and then they can try to attract farmers through. So it's kind of like a sales channel for us, which is really helpful. We do this with, um, I'll give you a couple couple examples. Um, one is a company called Granular uh, that we've been partnered with for uh, almost a couple of years now. They're a farm management software platform where farmers keep track of a lot of the data that they need to use in order to manage their business. And we can import that data directly from Granular and use that in t- for the uh, quantification procedure uh, where we figure out how much carbon they're actually storing. So that's helpful that granular can bring more farmers, but also that they are aggregating a lot of the data that we need. Um, Another example is a seed company in California called Locus Ag. um, And what they do is uh, they're testing out um, a soil amendment thing that can, that they believe can help increase the amount of carbon sequestration as a part of the crops. And so uh, working with a marketplace like Nori to help the farmers uh, get paid for that carbon storage and, figure out like how much of actual uh, extra benefit there is um, from their product that's uh, like right in line with their their mission. So we work with partners for different reasons, um, but ultimately it's all about trying to find ways to increase value uh, for the farmer. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's very interesting that you, you said I had to build these relationships within the agriculture sector, because as, as we've talked about, it's responsible for a significant fraction of emissions, depending on how you account for it, maybe it's 10, 20%. People think about climate change and carbon emissions, and they always think about the power stations. Here, here in the UK, we're actually quite close to, well, we're fairly close to decarbonizing our power stations. We, we've done pretty well in terms of installing wind. I don't think that's going to be the hardest sector, because some of the advantages with the power sector is there's relatively few big players. There's a lot of government intervention and regulation already. Yeah. And you can actually come in and influence those things. With agriculture, though, of course, there's a lot more players. It's a lot more diffuse. The problems uh, and the, the ways that CO2 are being emitted are often a lot less transparent than you are burning some coal and it's putting CO2 into the atmosphere. And I think what people don't realize is that this there's this second phase that we're going to have with climate change after we've uh, decarbonized the power sector, where we have to decarbonize things like transport and 
buildings and heating and agriculture. And that's actually going to be, I think, a lot more difficult and it's going to require a lot more buy-in from many different parties, which is why I think it's interesting that you've chosen this approach of uh, soil carbon sequestration, which obviously has all these co-advantages as well, as opposed to some of the more uh, industrial approaches that we might talk about a little bit later on. Yeah, I, I tend to think of it like, um, you know, back of the envelope math, um, if we were to uh, if we were to try to address the full scope of the problem in terms of the amount of carbon emissions that are in the air, um, we emit between 40 to 50 billion tons of CO2 equivalent every year uh, worldwide. And so not only do we need to get that number down to zero uh, through a mix of decarbonization and carbon removal, but then we also need to go further and pay down our carbon debt, which is well over 1 trillion tons of CO2 that's already up in the air. Um, So even if we were to uh, maximize entirely uh, all of the different ecological methods of carbon removal, so like uh, farming and forestry and kelp and um, anything in between, we're still going to fall short of that 40 to 50 billion ton number. And that's where industrial solutions will come into play, but they're not ready for scale yet. And uh, we need to create the uh, financial infrastructure so that it's possible for those to uh, be profitable. And that's how we'll start to see them scale up. So that's why we're focused on the ecological methods first. Mm -hmm. No, it makes sense. So generally, one major concern with negative emissions and uh, schemes that were called offsetting, I think that's gone out of fashion calling them that now, but is that there's often these delicate and subtle issues with carbon accountancy. So again, how can you be sure that precisely one ton of CO2 is really being removed? How do you know for certain it's not going to leak out again? How can you be sure that you're not paying people for something they would have done anyway, or something that's already taken into account in, in carbon budgets? Um, how do you account for, for example, different timescales over which CO2 is emitted and sucked up? So if you're planting a tree, that's going to take time to store its carbon. And then, of course, there's things like the life cycle emissions of your activities. So if you're driving somewhere to plant a tree, you're actually emitting CO2 in the process of doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, lots and lots of these earlier offsetting activities were found to be quite ineffective. And just just to say, this isn't a criticism of anyone's business model, but carbon accountancy is such a difficult problem that when it comes to even geopolitical debates over how to attribute emissions, this is an issue that academics have argued could severely undermine the Paris Agreement when everyone's pledging to do different things, but accounting for the carbon in different ways and so on. And there's a lack of uh, trust, transparency and understanding. And I think that your company is very clear on this issue. You know, you have a carbon accountant at Nori, so this is the kind of thing that they will deal with. And um, so, how, so how is it that you're looking to ensure that there's this transparency, this uh, this proper accounting, and what kind of issues are you running into when you're certifying these negative emissions? Well, one of the important things to understand here is that uh, car- so we're talking about carbon removal from the atmosphere, and when you hear people talking about carbon offsets like 99% of the time, they're talking about some sort of project that purports to avoid future emissions. So think of like a uh, methane capture at a landfill or um, a dairy digester or renewable energy conversion or something like that. They're doing something and saying, because of this project, there are future, uh, there are um, fewer future emissions uh, that will uh, happen as a result. There's a certain amount of subjectivity to uh, an offset project like that when you're trying to determine like uh, how much is 
how much carbon is actually being avoided and how how much would have happened if they hadn't done this project. And they have these different additionality tests is what they're called um, to define that. And so you're defining, is it additional in terms of the amount of carbon? Is it additional in terms of uh, the financial side of things? And so, th- which I think is kind of a silly question, which basically asks if, um, if somebody's doing a project and they're earning carbon offset credits and they're selling those credits, uh, is the project only financially sustainable as a result of the credits? If so, then it passes the financial additionality test. But if because there's this idea that it wouldn't happen without the credits, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then if you invert that, it means that the only projects that could ever qualify for carbon credits are the ones that are not profitable, which is absurd because we the whole goal is that we want to have more of these happening we want to we want to do more projects to avoid emissions and to remove emissions so if you're creating this like barrier where you're saying that um the only projects that can move forward are the unprofitable ones that's uh, that's just from an economics perspective that's just laughably stupid so uh what we do is something entirely different and we're talking about projects that remove uh, carbon dioxide that is already up in the air and then sequester it somehow. So this is a very, very different proposition than saying you're doing something and you're hoping that it's going to avoid future emissions. In our case, we're actually measuring real world outcomes from actions that have been taken by people to remove carbon. So a lot of that uh, kind of subjectivity just kind of falls away. And for us, the only additionality test that matters is are we measuring relative to a baseline of how much carbon is actually being removed? And the way that we do that is by working with our partners at a platform called Comet Farm. Comet Farm is a uh, modeling platform uh, out of Colorado State University, and it's funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And what they do is they take in operating data from farmers and say, you know, based on the different practices that you are uh, doing, Um, this is how much carbon you're storing relative to what would have happened if you had continued with the conventional practices. So they have to set like a, a, what what we call a switch year. Um, So saying like, I made the change to cover cropping in 2017. And that is how we help set the baseline. And we're measuring the amount of carbon removed uh, since then. Um, So that's our, that's our approach to the additionality side of things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because sort of the the offsetting question is always a little bit like uh, I'm I'm paying someone to promise not to stab people in the future. You know, you're sort of right. avoiding additional harm and not actually doing anything to address the harm that's already been caused. And from the sort of from the sort of moral and attributive standpoint, I I suppose when we want to be carbon neutral, we want to think that the thing the thing that we've done to emit CO two into the atmosphere has been compensated for by an equivalent removal and not some notional relative to some baseline uh, avoided future emissions instead. Right. These things aren't completely fungible across time, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And and businesses are starting to recognize this, too. So uh, Microsoft announced at the beginning of the year that they were committing a billion dollars to pay for carbon removal going back to their founding in 1975. They want to remove all of the emissions that they've ever been uh, responsible for. And that's a different proposition than just uh, going for carbon neutrality by buying some 
carbon offset projects. So this is a, a trend that is uh, large and growing among industry. And people are recognizing like, oh, now we have the ability to undo our carbon emissions. It's just something that's never really been possible before. So I'm not I don't want to besmirch like the legacy carbon markets too much. Um, they were working with the tools that they had. It's just that now we have the ability to do large scale carbon removal and we should do so. Mm-hmm. And um, in in terms specifically, I mean, one other issue that I that I think is important is when we speak about the verification and assuring that we avoid double counting. So there are yeah. some issues sometimes with problems of tree planting and so on, where things are being counted towards two separate targets, or there there, there are issues with double counting. I mean, how how do you work to avoid that? So that Comet Farm platform that I mentioned, they're the ones who do the quantification, but we have to have the farmers work with independent third-party verifiers to verify the accuracy of the data. And one of the other components of what the verifier does is they're ensuring that the farmer isn't uh, like registering this information in a different market for sale twice. So there is a verification step where they're checking to make sure that this is only uh, being compensated for inside the Nori platform. Mm-hmm. It's important, I think, because all of this stuff uh, might sound very technical, but I think the USP of the type of platform that you're coming up with and that you know is starting to show up now is is this real sense of verification. Okay, no nonsense. If you pay us this amount of money, you will know that X tons of carbon have been sequestered and that the sort of net emissions will have fallen by such and such a percent on on account of the actions that have been taken. I mean, one one thing that I always find fascinating, which frankly, I don't think is widely enough known. The real extent to which any hope of fulfilling the Paris Agreement apparently depends on negative emissions. If you look at all of the central scenarios being modelled by uh, energy system, climate modellers, people who who look at this academically, that are compliant with the two degrees target, um, you have in almost all cases billions upon billions of tonnes of CO2 being removed from the atmosphere every year by the end of the century. Um, When people talk about negative emissions and removing CO2 from the atmosphere, I think we have to be careful to say it's it's obviously not a silver bullet because there's a, there's a limitation here that comes from simple physics. I mean, I often say to people, you can't have shortcuts when it comes to negative emissions. If you want negative emissions to scale to the point where they can make a big difference, then your negative emissions industry has to be on the scale of the industry that currently emits CO2. But unfortunately, in, in our case, that's pretty much all of industry at the moment around the world. So it's, it's, a, it's a very big scale that we have to act on to, to make this work. And I think there's there's a disconnect here. So you know, governments, corporations, and so on, they pay lip service to the Paris Agreement, and they say they're going to be Paris compliant. Their economists and modelers are telling them that this is going to involve a negative emissions industry or market that will be billions of tons of CO2 removed from the atmosphere a year. I, you know, I read a recent paper in preparation for this interview, which looked at these scenarios and said, between 2030 and 2050, in the case with the least negative emissions that they modeled, there might be on average 10 billion tons of CO2 sucked out of the atmosphere to get to two degrees Celsius in the in the Paris Accord, at a widely quoted good price of fifty dollars a ton, which some people talk about as a sort of benchmark price for these things, this industry would be worth five hundred billion dollars a year. At Nori's current price of fifteen dollars a ton, which you're offering at the moment, which we'll discuss in more depth a bit later, that's one hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. And even for this to be, uh, that one thing I should say is that all of this is conditional on other quite radical climate policies coming in as well. You know, most of these economic models assume that a carbon price comes into place. And so people are incentivized to stop buying SUVs and stop burning coal and doing all the the easy things that we can stop doing, so to speak, uh, to reduce CO2 emissions. 
the more we delay on climate, the more dependent we're going to be on negative emissions. And it's sort of looking like uh, COVID notwithstanding that we're still kind of delaying on the on the scale of the action that we're having here. So whatever way you slice it, if Paris is going to come true, then this is going to be a really huge industry. So, I mean, do you do you see this disconnect as well in terms of the the number of people who are talking about this and the number of people who are doing it and the 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 numbers that uh, Paris compliance suggests we would need this industry to scale to in the next few decades. Yeah, I so I don't know. I, I think I'm a bit more optimistic than the scenario you just described. Um, like market forces are already pushing like renewable energy is cheaper than maintaining existing coal power plants. Um, mm-hmm. We're seeing lots of mandates by countries that are banning uh, fossil fuel vehicles starting in 2025, 2030, uh, 2040, uh, that sort of time frame that um, that'll probably be fairly effective. Uh, it, like Consumer demand for electric vehicles is uh, rapidly increasing and all of the manufacturers are pivoting into that direction. Um so and and the entire ag industry is uh, trying to uh, deal with their own source of carbon emissions. We have the airlines uh, that have the Corsia program, and starting next year, all international flights are going to have to remove or offset their emissions that go above today's baselines. Uh, prior to COVID, they were estimating that would be about two and a half billion tons of CO two uh, avoided over um, fifteen years. And I, 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 my guess is that other industries will follow a similar suit and pursue their own self-regulatory mechanisms. Um, like the International Maritime Organization is considering how to do this kind of thing for commercial shipping. And I would not be surprised if the uh, food and ag industry came up with some sort of uh, large uh, compact between each other in terms of their commitments to regenerative agriculture. So like the Paris goals seem eminently attainable to me. Uh, 10 billion tons removed by the end of the century. Uh, I think we're going to get to the end of the century and laugh at how small that goal was because uh, like it's... The power of market forces, I think, is really understated and uh, getting to a a billion tons removed uh, total um, seems like really, really possible, certainly in this decade. Uh, And then things are just going to continue to accelerate. Um, So. I, I think this is really possible, and I, and I think that things are going to move a lot faster than a lot of estimates believe. Um, I mean, you are sort of then saying that you're viewing this as being an industry that will be worth hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Yeah, absolutely. And so in that, in that sense, you know, your goal has got to be to capture some fraction of that market. There are relatively few people out there at the moment who are doing things similar to Nori. There are, there are four or five uh, different companies that I can think of off the top of my head that have some way or other of removing... Uh, CO2 and and very few that offer it uh, direct to individual consumers as as you're doing. Right. So I mean that, that that I suppose that's what I mean by the disconnect. I mean is the, do you do you think that's the case that you've sort of you've happened upon this market that is about to explode and become a very very huge industry and there aren't actually that many major players who are looking at it as as a growth industry in the same way. Uh, I definitely agree with the first half of that. I don't know if I agree with the second half that there aren't as many players looking at this. I think that there are. Um, I just think that um, we're far ahead of a lot of them. Um, So uh, like I said, the entire food and ag industry, I mean, we're talking about all of the major food companies. Uh, They're all pursuing this in some way. Um, seeing initiatives by Microsoft and Stripe and Shopify and Intuit about wanting to remove their emissions. These are leaders who are um, 
uh, in Amazon as well. These are leaders who are uh, setting the stage and setting the tone for others that will follow suit. Um, so I, I think that this is going to become a lot bigger than people think that it will today. Um, and we just happened to see something um, back in 2015 that other people weren't seeing yet. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, the most recent offering from from Nori, which is sort of offering uh, batches of carbon removal tons uh, for sale initially, involved negative emissions at $15 per ton of CO2 sequestered, which is a, a very, very good price uh, when you look at the at least the academic literature for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that price, Nori-style sequestration would be cheaper alternative to lots of different ways of emitting CO2, it would be a cheaper way of. Um, so, for example, in there, there's there's quite a famous graph in in climate uh, politics where we look at uh, the the cost of avoiding tons of CO2 by various different methods. And in some cases, as you say, this cost is negative or becoming negative. For example, in some areas, it will be cheaper to shut down a coal plant and build renewables instead than it will be to keep that coal plant running. In which case, you have a negative cost. But there's still quite a lot of uh, situations where the low carbon alternative to what you're doing is quite substantially more expensive than $15 per ton, in which case the price that you set for negative emissions becomes the sort of backstop, because the price that you set for negative emissions is going to be the maximum price anyone would pay to avoid emitting a ton of CO2, because if they were willing to pay that price to avoid emitting it, then they may as well just bury it instead and actually emit it. So $15 a ton is is a, is a very, very good price, and that's partially why for listeners i availed myself of several tons of this um so i the question i have is how have you achieved this price and given that it's using soil carbon sequestration do you think it's scalable and what kind of scale could you get it up to uh using the type of methods that you're using at the moment um well uh, so we're trying to create a situation where the price is actually being set by market supply and demand. We don't want to be price setting. Um, and today, right now, that $15 price was set by that first farm project that we worked with. Um, so the the farmers are having the voice in, in how that price is getting set, at least today. And then eventually we'll shift to a um, situation where there is a... Uh, there'll be a, a commodity trading market aspect to this that will help set the price. So we should, we, we want to see a carbon reference price come out of this. Um, $15 is a, a reasonable price for what buyers are paying relative to other types of offsets and relative to the uh, value of uh, carbon removed from the atmosphere. And it's certainly enough to provide a healthy margin for the farmer uh, at, in, in this particular case today. Um if we look at the total amount of potential sequestration, um, American croplands alone uh, could sequester somewhere between half a billion to a billion tons every single year if it were at truly maximum potential. And then globally, uh, that number is probably between five to 10 billion tons per year. Uh, so there, there's a lot of potential there. And from our modeling work that we've done, uh, the, the amount of volume available is very much dependent on price. So uh, th- this should be intuitive. The higher the price that people are willing to pay for removing a ton of CO2, uh, the more incentive there is for people to remove CO2. Um, so that's that's our whole mission is trying to create this market system where the value of this increases over time and there are more and more people uh, jumping in, starting new businesses, uh, creating new ways to remove carbon from the air and uh, just generally accelerating the rate at which we're doing this. 
So on that subject, there are other companies like uh, Climeworks, Carbon Engineering, etc., who are using direct air capture. And uh, to briefly explain this, I guess you'd say these are the sort of mechanical ways by which we'd remove CO2 from the atmosphere. They might use, for example, a chemical that reacts with the CO2 and uh, sequesters it chemically. Um, you can build sort of fake plastic trees that will do it for you and things like this. <laughs> um, at the moment, it's more expensive, but at least it's arguably infinitely scalable. Whereas, as you mentioned here, although the potential for agricultural methods to sequester CO2 is very large, uh, it's also limited by the amount of land that you have and the amount of agriculture that you have. And when we're dealing with, as I say, trying to get something going on the scale of industry, the the fractions of the Earth's land surface start to become relevant quantities here. With direct air capture, as long as you can build the machines and you can pay for the machines, you can manufacture them like cars and have as many as you want sucking CO2 down all over the world. Um, so that that's the sort of advantages and disadvantages of direct air capture. So, I mean, would you ever consider moving into an area like that? and Or is it the case that you view your role as, let's make the marketplace, let's find our partners in the marketplace, and we don't care if they're a farm or if they're someone building direct air capture plastic trees, and we'll let the uh, market forces decide which are the most uh, cost-effective ways of doing this and whether people are willing to pay to make some of them sustainable businesses or not. It's really the latter. Um, our intention is that to be agnostic to the different methods of carbon removal. And um, the, the only key there is that we have to have a methodology in place for measurement and verification before anyone can uh, start getting paid for carbon uh, uh, mm-hmm. through our platform. But yeah, I, I mean, I agree with everything that you said. And, and going back to what I was saying earlier, like maximum potential for ecological solutions is maybe 20 to 30 billion tons per year. And if we were to truly uh, try to go for uh, net zero carbon emissions plus paying down our carbon debt, that gap has to be made up with industrial approaches. Um, I mean, there are other limitations to like direct air capture beyond what you mentioned, including like the energy required to run them, as well mm-hmm. as the the embodied carbon uh, in terms of the materials that are used to manufacture them. So that's just part of the overall life cycle analysis. But um, yeah, they're expensive now. They'll be less expensive in the future. And our intention is to create a price signal that helps drop that cost to get economies of scale with uh, direct air capture and other industrial approaches. And when I think about, I mean, you you make a very good point, by the way, about the life cycle emissions, because uh, the, the one advantage for agricultural practices is that actually the energy that's required for them is quite often less than in the form of other uh, solutions for negative emissions. So I'm thinking of direct air capture, but also something like enhanced weathering, which is the idea of grinding up rocks, which mm-hmm. react with CO2. Uh, in, in some accountancies of that, depending on how you do it, you can actually end up essentially being carbon neutral um, in, in, over the course of how you do it in, in papers that I've read. So there, there are always going to be these issues of accountancy, which is why I think the accountancy standards that you set for the CO2 are so important. Um, so just just out of interest, so you've worked with this, uh, the one project so far, you said, how much CO2 do you think uh, you've managed to sequester in that project so far? Last fall, we worked with this pilot farm uh, in Maryland in the US, and uh, he removed 14,000 tons. Um, and that was uh, for us, that it was a lot of manual work to get the quantification done, because there is a whole lot of data that we have to collect from the farmer and then run through that Comet platform. Um so what we've been working on the last six months or so is building out tools to better automate that data collection process and make it easier for farmers to um, 
uh, start running their numbers and uh, seeing the results of the practices that, that they've adopted. Because we're it's really important to remember, we're measuring outcomes, we're not defining practices. So it's up to the farmer to choose what level of tillage they want to do, what type of cover crop they want to plant, if they want to plant cover crops. And we're just measuring however much carbon is being sequestered as a result of that process. I see. That's interesting. So t- from a certain perspective from the farmer, they can have a degree of flexibility about to what extent they want to prioritize carbon sequestration versus other aspects, depending yeah. on how their business is going and their requirements at the time. That's interesting. Um, so, I mean, one one thing that I want to talk about from a sort of a slightly political angle here is that there are people who will say that these models that rely so heavily on negative emissions and the general assumption that technology is going to come along to save us are to an extent, useful fictions by people who really want to keep emitting CO2. Because once you have a negative emissions dial in your model, uh, what stops you from just turning it endlessly up and prevaricating into the future on your climate action? And I think there's definitely a lot of people as well who would argue that this prevents us from confronting the real problem of how we live, which is that we live in in a way that is quite extractive and unsustainable. And negative emissions could provide a sticking plaster on top of that rather than actually fixing the fundamental problem. Now, I don't entirely agree with that myself, but how would you respond to that sort of argument? Well, it's, I mean, the crux of it is not wrong. Um, And certainly uh, preventing an emission of one ton of CO2 is definitely better than removing and sequestering a ton of CO2. Um, So I, I would fully advocate for continued decarbonization, but the problem is it's too late. We don't have a choice in the matter. Uh, when when I got into this in 2015, like the term carbon removal wasn't even really being used widely, and it did not take me long at all, maybe a year or so, before I met pretty much every group in the world who was all interested in working on carbon removal, um, different uh, research centers at uh, universities and that kind of thing. And um, there's there was a long history of uh, suppressed research. Well. Uh, that's probably an extreme term, but just like people not really wanting to address this and saying we need to focus on um, uh, decarbonization because if we don't do that, then people are going to get a free pass like you described. But the challenge is, even if we were able to successfully turn off all sources of human emissions tomorrow, we're still screwed. There's still way too much carbon in the air. So we have to adopt uh, negative emissions, carbon removal practices today, and just continue trying to use market forces to push other decarbonization efforts. Like I mentioned, renewable energy is now cheaper than maintaining existing coal power plants. So that's a good thing. And that's the kind of thing that is going to uh, save us in the future. Yeah, it's interesting. You see, you talk about how uh, carbon removal has been a somewhat sort of suppressed or perhaps the research that dare not speak its name for a while. Um, I think the, the interesting thing about looking through the history of, of climate change research is that actually for a while uh, adaptation to the effects of climate change occupied a similar role because people didn't want to talk about adapting to it. They wanted to talk about prevention. And there was a feeling that if we began to talk about ways of adapting to it and investing money in infrastructure that would adapt to it, then people might feel like they had a free pass to continue emitting CO2. Now, you know, 10, 20 years down the road from that conversation, adaptation is central to what we have to do um, purely because of what we've already locked in and, what, and what's already happened to the planet on our watch. So I, I feel like you're hitting the sort of notes that I would as a climate pragmatist in that if we insist that there is only one solution or one method of tackling the problem without allowing ourselves to consider the others, then we run the risk of 
setting back progress in areas that we may need later on. And we risk making it a bit of an all or nothing process. Right, exactly. And it's impossible for any like one person or group of people to have enough information to choose and decide uh, what are the exact best ways to do it. And that's why we're trying to use market forces to help determine what's the most efficient and effective means of solving climate change. So alongside your work in negative emissions, Nori is also starting to be a bit of a burgeoning media empire. You've got two podcasts, uh, mm-hmm. one on climate change in general mm-hmm. and one on negative emissions specifically. Uh, as a podcast evangelist, you know, I, I support this sort yeah. of thing. So would, would you like to talk about these a little bit more and, uh, you know, why you decided to get into those and the sort of people you've been able to speak to on these shows? Yeah. Um, so uh, back in 2017 was when we got the company started. And the, the way that we started was uh, by doing a month-long hackathon competition. It's called Blockchain for Social Impact Hackathon. And as a part of our submission for the the contest, uh, we put together a podcast episode. So it really became episode one of the Reversing Climate Change podcast. And the idea was really inspired by, um, do you know the startup podcast um, from Gimlet Media? Um, I don't. I know of Gimlet Media's offerings, but I don't know that specific one. Well, startup was the thing that started Gimlet. So it was uh, Alex, I can't remember his last name, the CEO there. Um, He... He had been a producer at Planet Money, and he wanted to. He just got interested in like interviewing so many of these startup founders that he wanted to try that out for himself. And so he started a podcast about him trying to start a podcasting company, and it was called Startup. And um, <laughs> meta, yeah, it was very meta, uh, and it was a real hit back in like 2014, I think. And the the I always thought the notion of that was really cool because it was a narrative telling of like this is how the sausage is getting made, and for the people who are interested in that, they can get an insider's view on what it's like to uh, build that kind of company. And so we had the thought at the beginning of this uh, that, you know, what we're talking about is very complicated. And back in 2017, the idea of talking about fixing climate change and like massively sequestering a, a lot of carbon dioxide, no one talked about that publicly. So we wanted to create a space where we could have that conversation and help people see the different ways and uh, methods that are available today to help solve climate change. Because I think there's a lot more reason to be optimistic than to hold despair. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of the Reversing Climate Change podcast. Uh, since then, there have been over a um, hundred and some odd episodes. We interview different uh, entrepreneurs, um, uh, writers, um, policymakers who are working in climate change and uh, trying to uh, solve it. And we and we try to be uh, fairly ecumenical in terms of having uh, people of very different political perspectives on Um I, I've always thought the most interesting thing is we get the most positive feedback when we have like American conservatives on uh, who are talking about climate change in their own way. And uh, it's just been a really, really useful way for people to find out about Nori, learn about what we're doing. And I mean, we a lot of our uh, consumer sales happen because of the podcast. A lot of the farmers who know about us know about us because of the podcast. Um, it's been really helpful uh, for growing the business. And then the other podcast is called Carbon Removal Newsroom, and uh, we just went to a new format. And but these are both hosted by um, 
uh, one of our one of my co-founders, Ross Kenyon, who uh, it does an excellent job in interviewing and kind of moderating these discussions. And uh, Carbon Removal Newsroom is now kind of in a new format where we've got a panel of, of people and we're just talking about the latest uh, news about um, carbon removal, whether it's legislation or companies taking action or stuff like that. And um, so that's a new format that people should check out at Carbon Removal Newsroom. That's very good. So I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out a little bit here, because uh, we've we've talked about the trends that have been happening in terms of carbon removal. And I think these corporations that are making commitments and Microsoft, of course, saying that will account for our historic CO2 emissions as well is a very, very big example of that. Um, so, I mean, obviously, I presumably you're going to say that you'll see this trend continuing. What else do you think could happen uh, in the future that's going to impact the carbon removal market? Well, I, I think that the the big thing is I'm, I would predict a lot more industries uh, to self-regulate, like working in partnership with governments, because I just don't really think that um, uh, uh, carbon pricing is tossed around as like the obvious solution to this. And I don't think that the evidence supports that for one. And two, I just don't think it's politically feasible. Uh, and three, uh, how do you figure out what the price should be? Um, so... I don't think that that's the way that regulatory compliance is going to go. I think it's going to be more um, industry self-regulation. And and then I do believe that there will be more businesses that are uh, stepping up in the same way Microsoft has. Um, and, and, and I also think that like Nori and other platforms like it are going to help enable a future where carbon removal just kind of... Uh, sits in the background in the same way that like garbage and waste disposal is in the background. Like we don't ever think about it, uh, but it happens and we pay for it. Um, carbon removal should be the same way. We just haven't had the tools to do so before now. It's true. And it's interesting. And then it's an interesting analogy. I remember one thing that a supervisor of mine once said about carbon dioxide is that the fossil fuel companies in a sense have done quite well to trick us into thinking that CO2 emissions are this integral part of human civilization and life that can't possibly be dealt with and that it's uh, climate change is a sort of existential problem that confronts everyone but f- looked at from another perspective it is a waste disposal problem it's an industry that has a waste product that it's currently uh, not compelled to dispose of and chooses not to dispose of except by throwing it into the atmosphere and in in this sense what you're marketing is a waste disposal solution that's right that's exactly right <laughs> and we we often use that analogy uh that like we're the garbage collectors for carbon Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important that, again, there's this perception that, you know, traditionally, when we look at these papers and the economic modeling, uh, a top down global governing authority imposes a carbon price, and then everyone just responds to that carbon price. That This, obviously, as you say, getting political agreement on this kind of thing has been extremely difficult. Even the Paris Agreement, which is a global agreement, is essentially voluntary in terms of people choosing uh, to what extent they're going to comply with it and to what extent they're right. going to uh, submit things. So the idea of uh, bottom up voluntary contributions which ratchet upwards uh, is is what the car was what the Paris agreement is founded on and it seems like what you're looking to do in the corporate world is enable something similar to that to happen between different corporations because if you don't have this bottom up infrastructure of this sort of thing happening if people top down impose you need to remove all of your co2 from the atmosphere there won't be the, the industry that can do it for them Right. And and I do want to offer a different perspective on the notion of carbon pricing itself. So whenever we hear that term carbon pricing, people are talking about it in the way of saying it should cost a certain amount of money in order to emit a ton of CO2. 
What Nori is doing is the inverse of that. We're saying there should be a value on the action of removing a ton of CO2. So we're trying to create a carbon price as well, but it's more value driven rather than cost driven. And I think that that makes all the difference in the world. Yes, it's suddenly not a penalization. It's the creation of the marketplace instead. Yeah. So what's next for Nori? Well, we, uh, we're we in pilot phase right now, uh, working with a bunch of farmers in the process of enrolling. We have a, uh, coming through our partners, um, like I mentioned. And uh, the second half of this year, the focus is going to be on really dramatically increasing the amount of uh, enrollment that we have through farmers. Because we, we see this as far more of a supply bottleneck than a demand challenge. Uh, the, the demand is there, uh, but we need to get the supply available. And that's what we're focused on executing on right now. Great. Paul Gamble, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about Nori and the work you've been doing there. Thank you for having me, Thomas. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. You can find Nori on the web at nori.com and you'll be able to find their podcasts, Reversing Climate Change and the Carbon Removal Newsroom there. So do check them out if you'd like to hear more similar discussions. They have had some really good guests over the last few weeks on Reversing Climate Change. So I do recommend that, not just because Paul came on the show. Now, Remember, of course, my voice is about to change, which means I'm going to do the list of plugs that ends the show. You can find us on the web. That's physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form. Get in touch with me about anything, comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like to see us cover. Obviously, we're quite happy to cover all kinds of things on the show. Things that you like, things that you don't like. It's a constant process of trying to get better at doing this as I go along with varying degrees of success. But it's always nice to hear from people. And I do respond to all of those emails that I get. You can also find there on the website physicspodcast.com, you'll find the PayPal, the Patreon, ways to support us financially. The best way to support us really is to tell as many of your friends as possible to listen who might be interested. Uh, talk about us on social media if you think it's worthwhile. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, those are other ways to engage with us. And you can review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time then, please take care. <laughs>